Listeners, start your engines. Detours episode 28. Rob here. On this episode, film critic Morgan Roberts joins us to discuss 1992's The Muppet Christmas Carol, the holiday classic now celebrating its 30th anniversary. Uh, as always, you can find more episodes of this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, and other podcatchers, as well as crookedtable.com. Go ahead and give us a rating and review wherever you're listening to this. And one other thing I wanted to note, I do mention in this episode the removal, and fans of this film will, will know all about this, the removal of the song When Love Is Gone and how frustrating that is for me as a fan of that of that song and its place in the story. Since this episode was recorded, they did announce that this that was going to be restored into the widescreen version of the film, and it's since been added to Disney+. Plus. So... When we get to that and and you hear me go on my little rant about when love is gone, uh, know that I am aware that uh, that situation has been rectified. But for now, let's listen to a little bit of the trailer and then jump into our conversation about the Muppet Christmas Carol. It's Charles Dickens' classic tale, as only the Muppets can tell it. It's good to be heckling again. It's good to be doing anything again. Filled with holiday warmth. Hey, 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 like the lamp, not the rat, like the lamp, not the rat. And Christmas spirit. Jacob Molly. Scary stuff. Should we be worried about the kids in the audience? No, it's all right. This is culture. This is the movie to see, to share, to cherish with someone you love. Thank you for making me a part of this. Walt Disney Pictures presents, from Jim Henson Productions, The Muppet Christmas Carol. God bless us, everyone. Whatever. Welcome to Franchise Detours, where we believe no movie series travels in a straight line. And now we're continuing our mega series through the Muppets movie franchise, the eight theatrical Muppet movies. So we're stepping into the fourth and kind of the most pivotal entry in the franchise thus far, which we'll get into in a minute. But for this discussion on the Muppet Christmas Carol, I am honored to welcome to the show Morgan Roberts. Welcome to Franchise Detours. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here and to talk about the Muppets and specifically their adaption of A Christmas Carol. Yeah, totally. So tell people who don't know who you are, like what you have going on and and where they can find you on the internet. Yeah, so I do freelance film and television criticism. I'm on the Cursed Bird app at MSML Roberts, where all of my stuff goes. You can also find my work kind of collected in one place at Cherry Picks as well. And what is sort of your, before we get into the Muppet Christmas Carol, Carol what is your history, sort of what was your introduction to the Muppets? I think I think you might have, speaking of the, the Cursed Bird app, I think you might have tweeted something randomly about this movie. And I was like, oh, I'm going to, 
I'm going to, I'm going to discuss that on the show. Would you want to come on and talk about it? It was something like that. It was sort of a happenstance. Luckily, Twitter and my, you know, my future plans for the show sort of align sometimes. And I'm able to book, you know, amazing guests like yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was because over the holidays in 2021, I went back to the Muppet Christmas Carol a lot just because it's a crisp, like 90 minute movie and it's Michael Caine at my personal favorite. And I actually grew up watching this movie like every Christmas. That was yeah our thing especially as kids because you know we can't sit through it's a wonderful life we're too bored there are some other christmas movies that are just not quite as appropriate for children but you can watch a muppet the muppet christmas carol you know if you're five years old or 50 years old so that's yeah yeah okay go ahead i was gonna say just the journey with the muppets really started with this film for me Okay, that's where I was going to ask. Like, what was this sort of your entry point into the the Muppet, I guess, as it were? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think my parents still have the VHS of the Muppet Christmas Carol. Yeah, it's... And to, to your point, there's a certain timelessness to these characters that, you know, I think especially early on, their their humor is really subversive and it's sort of kid-friendly, but not you know, not even necessary designed solely for kids. It's designed with kind of any age in mind. I think you could see that, especially in the the first three films when Jim Henson is actually around and part of it before he, he passed away. And this movie sort of kicks off kind of a new era of really putting the Muppets into adaptation. So for my side, I, I'm in my late 30s. So I, I grew up with Muppet babies in the 80s and the, the Muppets take Manhattan on repeat as a, as a toddler and things like that. So when this came out, I saw this in theaters with, I think, my cousin or something like in that, that holiday season. And this has been like, like your experience. It's been a perennial sort of favorite of mine over the years as far as, you know, Muppet movies, but also as far as holiday films. Actually, are you generally into the, this story or is it this specifically the Muppetized version of it that you're drawn to? I, uh, when I was in grad school, a lot of my focus was on existentialism in mental health care. And it's funny that for some reason, as a kid, I was always drawn to this film and the stories because Mm -hmm. in one of my courses, we ended up using the Christmas Carol as an example of like existential crises. And I was like, oh, maybe that I've just subconsciously always been gravitated towards the lifelong quandary of what do my choices mean as well as can I redirect my life for something different or better and yeah so I find it really funny how this story in particular always found a way to just crop up into not film necessarily in other aspects of my life yeah there's there's something inescapable about this story and there's a reason it's one of those one of those pieces of literature that's been adapted a thousand times in literally every conceivable way and that it's you know it's not only a morality tale but it's also about like what is your legacy that's that's one of the even as a child one of the aspects of the story that really stood out to me is the ghost of christmas yet to come 
showing Scrooge, like this is what you know, this is what how people react. They're glad you're gone. Like you, you brought nothing positive to the world. This is how, you know, the Ghost of Christmas Present shows him this is how the world sees you, and Christmas yet to come. It's like this is your legacy. This is what you are going to be remembered for. Is this what you want? Because he's so blinded by his own pain and his own you know, greed and his own obsession with with feeding his own self-interest and not looking at the larger picture. And I think that that's always been a really interesting idea for me, just kind of constantly questioning, like, yeah, like you were saying, what choices do I make and how do they shape where my life ends up? And I think that's, to to your point about Michael Caine, I, we'll get to Michael Caine in a second because I want to set the table for where the Muppet franchise was at this point, but he brings so much to this that even Michael Caine looks back and it's like, this is one of the, you know, he considers this one of the highlights of his career. And I think, you know, it might sound silly to say, but a lot of people have sort of come around to the fact that this is probably one of the best versions of this story. This is probably one of the best performances of Scrooge, full stop. And the casting of of Michael Caine as Avenue Scrooge is 100% the key to making this whole thing work. Yes. I mean, I... I know that you're going to set up a little bit more of this, but I think the thing that I admired the most about Michael Caine coming into this project was he just said, I'm going to act. And I know that this is a kid's movie, but I'm going to just embody this character. And the creative team was like, yep, nope, that sounds great. And I think that kind of is what adds so much to this is almost a shift too with the Muppets is it's not only an adaptation, but we're not talking down to children. Yeah. We are really tackling this very deep. And, you know, if you've ever read Charles Dickens' book, like it's crumpling. There's so much that he's trying to discuss in this essentially novella. And, you know, Michael Caine just did the thing. And I think that's why it is such an impactful performance to this day. Yeah, definitely. So just to to back it up slightly, obviously this came out in 1992, the the holiday season, which was more defined by Home Alone 2 Lost in New York, another one I grew up with. So that that's kind of where it was theatrically at the point. I I think it it did well in theaters, but its legacy like it is I think widely considered among the best Muppet movies at this point. And uh, it was the first film in the Muppet franchise to be released after Jim Henson passed away in 1990. Brian Henson, his son, directs this. This is his directorial debut. He also does Muppet Treasure Island, which we'll get to next episode. And it's you can you can tell a lot of care and deliberation went into every little aspect of this movie. First, first of all, putting the Muppets in an adaptation. This was initially kind of conceived as a, a TV movie for ABC before Disney was like, oh, this is awesome. Let's let's release this theatrically. Let's make this happen as a thing. That, that I think, is, is kind of a deliberate sidestep in that it's the Muppets, but it's not the Muppets as they usually... Because the three previous Muppet movies, Kermit the Frog is Kermit the Frog. And this is the first movie with Steve Whitmire doing the voice of Kermit and not Jim Henson. So I think there's a deliberate choice in having... Kermit plays Bob Cratchit and having, you know, having that character maybe play a little bit more of a supporting role, even though he does get his own song. There are large stretches that he doesn't show up. Even Miss Piggy doesn't show up until like two thirds of the way through the movie. It's also the first Muppet movie released after Richard Hunt, Muppet performer who did Scooter, who it doesn't really even factor into this film, passed away in 1992. And it's the first Muppet movie produced by Walt Disney, which obviously purchased the Muppets wholesale in 2004. 
And it's, I believe, the first time Paul Williams composes the music, or the songs at least. He wrote the songs. Miles Goodman did the the actual score for the film. But Paul Williams, who did the music, who did the songs for the Muppet movie, Oscar-nominated, Rainbow Connection, obviously. And it feels, in a way, because it has all that stuff riding on it, you can you can tell there was a lot of a lot of attention to detail, not only in the story and in the, the the casting of the specific Muppets and specific roles, in the production design, which I think is really underrated aspect of this movie, but also that it carries, I think, in just its choice of material, it carries a sort of weight, a sort of melancholy, a, a dash of tragedy that I feel like might even be informed a little bit by the loss of Jim Henson and Richard Hunt. Do you do you feel that as well, that maybe this movie is a little, it, as a Muppet film, just feels a little sadder because it is trying to move on past the, that, like those epic losses behind the scenes? Yeah, and I think that it's a very poignant story to tell after having all of that loss because it is, yeah. I feel like after you lose people, you start to kind of reevaluate your own life and your own trajectory. So here is, you know, the loss of Jim Henson, which was so mental and just just tragic. To then have his son be the person to really be at the helm of this, you can only wonder what it's like carrying on your parents' legacy and then what you're going to shape that legacy to be because it now is intertwined with your own story. So I think that there was just like, it was both a recognition of loss as well as a an opportunity for them to move forward. And that's such a difficult thing because there's a, a bittersweetness kind of throughout the film that you feel, even mm-hmm. with, you know, Paul Williams' music. I just think that it's both very joyous and also there's some melancholy in there as well. I mean, it, one moment that it really jumps out to me every time I watch it, and there's just just to, to, to front load this, there are numerous times when I watch this movie, every time I watch this movie that I get emotional. Like I said, my history with this franchise, growing up with all the Muppet movies, there's something like innate within me that when a group of Muppets sing, it's like, you know, tears start pouring. It's basically yeah. that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. So at the end, when when love is found, the, the reprise happens at the end, it's just like, Forget it. There's a moment later on that I think is feels particularly commenting on Jim Henson's loss where after Tiny Tim's death, where Bob Cratchit and the Cratchit family are sitting around the table and they're like, we, you know, I'm going to try not to get emotional as I say this. He says, you know, we'll never we shall never forget Tiny Tim or this first parting that there was among us. You know, I, that kind of thing always really hits me, especially as I've gotten older. You know, you grow up, grow up in a family unit with your brother or sister, you know, cousins, whatever, whoever you have in your household. And then, you know, as time passes, sometimes those people, you lose those people as you grow up or as you end, as you get older and you start to feel that, that weight of that loss. And this, this movie feel that moment feels like it is specifically designed to sort of say, Hey, we, you know, Jim is no longer here. We're trying to going to do our best to keep his legacy alive. And the fact that Kermit the frog is the one that utters that line, I think feels very, very poignant. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, as you even had stated, just the fact that we now have someone stepping into the the role of Kermit while we're not calling him Kermit in this is such an homage to Jim Henson because who can really ever replace him or that spirit? So it was, yeah, 
just and even just watching the Cratchit family together before that loss, seeing them in the present as kind of it almost felt as you know, almost dreamlike in a sense. It mm. was like almost the only time in the present that didn't quite feel as present as everything else because again, maybe there was that projection of the family unit. So, but yeah, all of those those moments kind of stick out, especially with the first time you see Tiny Tim, he's on Kermit's shoulder being brought into the family home. And there's just like, there's very much an attention to that father-son relationship. Absolutely. And you get the contrast. I know we're jumping all over this movie, but you get the contrast of the their arrival for Christmas and the joy and Belinda and Bettina rushing to the door and everything. And then later on when they come back and it's how much things have changed. I want to back it up a second. This is also, as we said, like the first feature length, at least a Muppet film that is an adaptation and not an original story. Obviously, the Muppet movie is, you know, how the Muppets became the Muppets. And then the Great Muppet Caper is, is you know, them kind of thrust into a heist movie. And then Muppets Take Manhattan is this ode to Broadway. And now here we are doing a direct adaptation of a literary work. How do you how do you feel that the Muppets work sort of plugged into an existing story? Because I I think we've seen you know wide range of of results from that approach. Obviously, Treasure Island comes after this, and years later they did the I think it was for NBC the Muppets Wizard of Oz, which I really don't like at all. As a self professed huge Muppet fan, that's one where I'm like, yeah, no, no, I draw the line at this. What are your thoughts on the Muppets as you know? cast it in these these kind of preset roles rather than you know letting Kermit be Kermit I think it kind of adds to that idea that we don't have to talk down to children about Mm. difficult things in life and having these familiar characters take on these you know you probably don't know it when you're a kid but in retrospect know that these are very iconic characters in a very iconic story I think that it kind of helps start to bridge that gap early on in people's lives to be able to start to engage in things like literature to engage with stories that cover really difficult or really deep concepts and you know I I also grew up watching Wishbone which was one of my favorite TV shows as a child mm. and you always saw Wishbone put himself in whatever literary story was happening and so I think the Muppets really paved the way for that type of storytelling so that it could be an engaging way of introducing kids to literature that when they become adults they almost rediscover that story. Yeah, I think it's you're we're seeing the the movie work on as you're sort of alluding to, you're seeing it work on multiple on two different levels really. Like like you said, there's there's the Muppet movie that's happening, but then there's the Christmas Carol movie that's happening. And I think Michael Caine represents sort of the gravitas, the weight of that story, playing it completely straight and that's why this works. If he was in on the joke, it would fall apart. But then you have that told through the prism of Gonzo the Great as as Charles Dickens establishes, I think, I think for the first time in these movies, Gonzo and Rizzo is sort of a pairing 
that they will play upon multiple times going in, going forward, in, including in Muppets from Space. Like the, there's a friendship there that they they keep going back to in the franchise, and having them use those characters, specifically Gonzo, as sort of this all-knowing narrator, literally quoting Dickens to the little kids that went to see him up at movie. I think it's such a brilliant move because of what you said, because you're able to do that, but you you filter it through Gonzo, you know, the most sort of, one of the most innocent and sort of lovable Muppet characters. And so you establish that that sort of trust with him. So even if he's saying something creepy, which they acknowledge for right out the gate, the Marleys were dead to begin with. It's dead as a doornail. And I, and you're able to sort of have that Muppet self-awareness at the same time where Gonzo and Rizzo peace out at the finale because they're like, this is too scary. We'll be back afterwards. Or, you know, to to either actually kind of break character a few times and sort of infuse that that sense of humor into, like you said, one of the one of the most beloved stories in all of literature. And I think they're able to to make it palatable in that way. And it's so smart that the the casting choices of Muppets in in the particular roles in here, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, having Gonzo's not just the narrator of the story, but like our audience surrogate, I think is really smart in he's essentially double cast in a way to play a single role that does both of those things because you know, then all of a sudden your audience is not only engaged, but they feel that they have a little bit of sense of the direction of what's going to happen. And there's almost like that security that you're being walked through the story together. But yeah, there's just excellent casting with the specific Muppets too, to play, you know, the, you know, ghost of Christmas present to have Bleaker show up as a, you know, to kind of be tormented by Michael Caine for a little bit, to have these characters together in these specific roles are very interesting, as well as then incorporating new Muppets because, you know, they don't have the Grim Reaper on the Muppet show. So having some of those things added as well, I think, you know, heightened that experience. Having Gonzo and Rizzo as sort of through line, I think it gives them confidence too to to be more to not only be more faithful to the text of the of the of a Christmas Carol, but also to like you said, have the Grim Reaper, have that uh, the Ghost of Christmas Past as sort of a, a. It's usually kind of a lot of times. Uh, I think in the novel, it's a it's a child or or sort of a cherub esque figure. And then, you know, the ghost of Christmas present being sort of a, a, a giant or a large kind of burly, joyous sort of figure. I think it, it gives them clearance to do that because originally the plan was for Muppet characters to be those ghosts. And I think it, it would sort of betray what Michael Caine is doing if he's reacting off of, you know, Scooter as the ghost of Christmas past or something like that. I think it, it you, you, you find, they find that balance between the two the two goals that they're trying to do, which is make a Muppet movie and tell a credible, like really faithful version of a Christmas Carol. Because there's, if you've read the the novella or you've seen the many other adaptations, this is aside from really kind of trimming down certain things and cutting out Ebenezer Scrooge's sister, who has a role in, in the novel or in the novella there, there's, Every, a lot of this pretty much checks out. It's just, you know, Muppet thrown with a Muppet sheen thrown on it, but it all plays out exactly as it does in the novella and the source material. And I think that 
that they're able to sort of marry those two concepts. It's it it's I feel like it works here in a way that it never quite works again when they try and do adaptations with the Muppets. And I don't know if it's it's because of this the circumstances that we already mentioned that the you know Muppet Studios was at a very specific point. They really had to come back strong to prove that they could keep these characters alive after Jim Henson, the you know sort of mastermind of all of it passed away or or what? Why do you think the Muppet Christmas Carol has endured in a way that a lot of the other ones, I know Muppet Treasure Island has its fans as well, but like they've tried this m- many times since and I feel like it's never quite as successful as it is here. Well, I think it also has to go to the story because I think that Treasure Island, while an interesting book and story, is really difficult to do in a way that sometimes trims elements of it that really are not appropriate for children and then like again the wizard of oz i think that that's also super difficult because we're doing a very well-known already documented movie that doesn't have you know a, a plethora of adaptation outside of the whiz um so i mean like it's not really material that people are looking to be readapted um and i think that a christmas carol is one of those things that is so easy to continue to readapt because there is so much in that original source material that you can start to hone in on something more specific in your adaptation that another adaptation either glossed over or just didn't see before so i think that there is so much artistic license within that story as well that you can kind of have a little bit of fun with it. And I also think that with The Muppet Christmas Carol, you have the opportunity to essentially have like cameos throughout it Mm -hmm. with, you know, like Sam the Eagle and Foggy Bear to where it keeps it fresh because you're seeing these characters that you know before, but you're not being bombarded with you know, the same characters doing, you know, going through this perilous journey, it's, it feels very quick. So I think that that's been part of the element of the story that has just been able to last and also so hard for them to recreate because what other piece of literature is A, child appropriate and B, has enough fluidity in it to be able to readapt it no that's a good point i feel like even as kids like we had familiarity with this story enough to sort of be like oh i get it the three ghosts because you know i grew up with scrooge the bill murray movie as well like there were there were many versions of this story out there at that around this time so they're able to sort of hit those beats but in their own way and it and it's a fairly straightforward linear story you know he's He's a miserly moneylender and he's haunted by his his former boss. Here it's the two of them, which by the way, speaking of Muppets brilliantly cast in role, Statler and Waldorf as as Jacob and Robert Marley is right up there. Then, you know, the three ghosts and then he, you know, he reemerges. Like it's a pretty straight, like structurally, it's pretty easy to follow for, for children as well. So I think that within there, you can color within those lines, all kinds of stuff where you know, Scrooge worked for a Fozzywig at the the rubber chicken factory, things like that. And you're like, yeah, sure. Okay. That, that's that checks out. 
Yeah, exactly. Like there's enough artistic license that you can make it feel very lived in with your characters instead of almost having like your characters plopped into a story, which, you know, I, but Treasure Island has a, I have a soft spot for it, but I mean, again, it's super difficult because instead of it being this very organic feeling adaptation and almost feels like you know, we're doing a high school play and we're just trying to cast people into roles rather than having it feel like a merge of two, you know, of source material and this Muppet world as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, Muppet Treasure Island to me feels more like a movie at war with itself where there's Tim Curry yeah. and uh, I, I don't remember the Jim as the main character. It's sort of their story and then Muppets just happen like, Kermit the Frog is like, hi, I'm Kermit the Frog. I'll be playing, you know, I'll be playing the captain of the ship. And, and it's just like, it doesn't, it doesn't mesh as well. And I think what's great about this movie is that even from the opening number, obviously we have a whole song about Scrooge, it, setting up who this character is, how cruel he is, how everybody in town is scared of him. It establishes this, this village. This is a universe where Muppet characters and human characters all kind of coexist. They're all meshed together. It's like uh, it's like Who Framed Roger Rabbit rules. Like yeah, they're all it's all it's a if they're all out there together. It's just part of the same community. And I think that 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 one story, one song, does so much storytelling before you even see Michael Caine when you're just watching him sort of like stomp around. And I, th- I think that it's it says a lot about not only Brian Henson's skill as a director here. And again, he did Muppet Treasure Island. He did a Muppet-esque movie, The Happy Time Murders, a few years ago, which is really awful, in my opinion. Apologies if there's any fans of that, but it's like, I don't know what... I, it's hard to believe that these two movies are made by the same director. It's it, he, you know, His direction, but also Paul Williams' music and how it, it really does a lot of the heavy lifting in telling the story and in getting this simple in some ways, but sort of rich and multi-layered tale out in like, I think it's 87 minutes or something like that, as mm-hmm. we sort of mentioned earlier. You know, I, what are your thoughts on on Scrooge, the number? And I guess, you know, Marley and Marley, since we've sort of touched on that, how these these numbers sort of af- affect the story, move it forward and blend the Muppet and the Christmas Carol together. Yeah, and I think starting it off with the numbers, like Scrooge, kind of makes it so that you are plopped into this world without it needing an explanation where those other adaptations are kind of more like wink wink nudge nudge about it being an adaptation and so I think just having we're watching these Muppet characters talk about Michael Caine as he is walking to work as he's almost like setting a very quiet authority and I, I think it's really brilliant to have that kind of grand number up front to be able to kickstart the story. Like it is, it's not 100% an overture in essence. It really is like we're going to get the first couple of chapters in this three minute song. And then we go to something like Marley and Marley, which is to me like a very dark song, which makes sense for. Paul Williams, he did do the music for The Phantom of the Paradise, which is such a campy, but also very dark and slightly odd adaptation of The Phantom of the Opera. And 
So he has that background of doing kind of these sinister-esque songs. And I really appreciate the fact that it is the second song because it helps kind of set the tone that this isn't a cutesy story either. It's the, that thing that I, I feel like I have become a major advocate for, which is children's entertainment in the 80s and early 90s that wasn't afraid to go dark, like we were sort of been saying. Like, it's okay to put a little bit of dark content out there in your children's entertainment. It's not, they'll, they'll live. In fact, it's good for them to sort of have that ex- exposure and sort of get a little bit of, of you know, uh, the darkness in the world, get a little bit of, of the melancholy and of the 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 menace and i think that it it makes not only for richer storytelling i think it, it i think it, it's sort of a in a way kind of a uh and, and gonzo says this i'm paraphrasing gonzo i guess sort of a, a culturally enriching gonzo says at one point you know i think grizzo says oh is it, you know is this too scary for them or whatever and he's like oh it's okay this is culture <laughs> and i think yeah. it, it it really works on that level too it it does it does and you know i think it's really funny to kind of have Gonzo beat the self-awareness too, as Rizzo is probably being the surrogate for some parents as they're watching two ghosts essentially tell Michael Caine that he's doomed for basically hell or some kind of purgatory. And, you know, they're just trying to wrap their minds around how they're going to have that conversation in the car on yeah. the way home. And they're talking about, oh, the orphans in the snowbanks with their little frostbitten teddy bears and they're laughing about it. And then they're shuddering because of of the the consequences of their actions. Like all of that stuff is so is so good. You get a little bit of like sort of dark humor with Sattler and Waldorf, but also like the stakes are set for for mm-hmm. Scrooge and and for the story. And I and I yeah, I love that song so much. And it's just it's just a banger. It's just a great song. Yeah. Uh, so catchy and 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 you were saying you know, with the the chains and all of that, it doesn't shy away from the fact that uh, that it's kind of make or break time for Scrooge, and and it, and it communicates that in a way that is a little spooky, but not something that's going to traumatize kids per se. And I and I I love that even though Gonzo and Rizzo are sort of this running commentary throughout, and they have the little antics where you know Rizzo gets frozen in the bucket of ice water, and you know he falls on the goose and he's running around, and you know Gonzo's like, oh, you have all the fun, like all that stuff. It doesn't detract from the movie it 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 deflates some of that tension but not so much that it feels like you know a minions movie or something where all like all the the humor is very you know straightforward and sort of sophomoric and it 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 feels true to those characters but also like nicely underlines everything that's going on in the movie yeah yeah absolutely it kind of is like that as you said breaks that tension and especially when there are parts that are going to be a little intense of having that ability to go to these characters that are in that moment and are not necessarily bothered by it I think also kind of helps the audience start to go a little bit at at ease too yeah absolutely and of course, early on, we also get this sort of classic Kermit feel-good song, One More Sleep Till Christmas, which is, again, a great a great song as well. But you get, you kind of front, the movie kind of front loads its Kermit early on so that when you, you don't have to spend a lot of time with them so they can really follow follow Scrooge's journey and not feel sort of chained, I guess, pun intended, to, to Kermit as the lead of this, the first Muppet movie that Kermit's not the lead of. 
which I think is, again, another something else that's really crucial, obviously, with Steve Whitmire taking over the voice. So I love that uh, that number as well. And that's that's sort of the songs in the first first act, essentially, before we meet the Ghost of Christmas Past, which, again, what I, I love that they they actually let that character feel more true to the spirit of the book. They actually filmed that that Muppet in like a, a tank of water, which gives it that sort of ethereal feel when they when they, you know, put it into this the scenes with Michael Caine. And I love the the whole Christmas past uh montage or sequence where you he sort of grows up in an instant and you know, we see Fozzie Wig and all this other stuff. But the one thing that I really want to talk about with the the Ghost of Christmas Past sequence is I'm sure you know, but there's a, supposed to be a song in there. That is yeah. not in many versions of this movie. What What are your thoughts on the fact that Bell's When Love Is Gone number was, wasn't in the theatrical version, which again, I saw as a kid, don't remember whether that song was in there or not. But I grew up with, I guess, the VHS version where I think it was put back in there as like an extended added song, whatever, like kind of part of the marketing, I guess. But it it was on like the full screen version of this. I, even the DVD that I have of this film I what I do is I watch the widescreen version. I get to that part. I go back to setup. I go to the full screen version so I can see that not that song. Then I go back to the widescreen version. What are your thoughts on this song? And it's it's I guess you know removal from the theatrical main version of this movie. I you know it kind of makes sense because songwriters love a good kind of ballad slower song and. In a kid's movie, it doesn't, depending on where it's placed, it doesn't always work to kind of have this ballad. And especially if you have like this reflective song, you really want it coming from your main character. And the fact that it wasn't coming from the main character, I think, does kind of detract a little bit in just a, if you're looking at it from a, this is how children movie musicals especially in this time frame are going to operate because you know this is also after the little mermaid and beauty and the beast as blueprints so i mean it's a good song because again it's paul williams but i can understand the want to remove it because it's it is humanizing scrooge without scrooge humanizing himself and i think that it kind of takes away from the impact of him coming to terms with his choices and learning to correct his mistakes. I could see that. I think it, it I think it's, it's, I'm, cause I'm a much bigger stand for this song. I, I think it's necessary because without it, Bell really doesn't have a presence, I feel like. So you don't get the sense of that lost love that, that Scrooge has sort of been, haunted by his whole life because you barely you she has like a line i think when they meet and then they they break up and that's the end and i think the moment i would agree with you that think the moment that really changes that for me is when old scrooge michael kane kind of comes over and sings with her that's the moment that really that really gets me emotionally because i otherwise i agree with you it's just it's just her singing like well you did once and then let me sing a song to you about how our our love isn't there anymore. And then just walking off. I think having that, that moment where Scrooge sees kind of, it allows himself or is forced to sort of confront that, that trauma in his life and, and sort of see it head on and relive it. 
I think because without it, it feels very strange that she says you did once walks away and then everybody's all emotional and crying. From a business standpoint, I get it. But from a standpoint of what we just said about not sort of talking down to kids, I'm like, come on, guys, it's like three minutes. So I understand it, but I don't like it. (laughs) The the removal, I guess, is my point. Yeah. I mean, at least it's available still. But um, yeah, I just especially because a lot of the music too before this was not in a like tragic love song kind of vein. It also kind of felt very different tonally from what we're kind of going for. But that also said like Paul Williams did write, I want to say the Carpenter song Superstar and we've only just begun. So like the man can write a ballad whenever he wants. Yeah, absolutely. And and the uh, the thing about that song I think that the most is jarring to me is that the end when when love is found that that literally like I mentioned earlier literally ends the movie is a callback to that moment with Belle. You take that song yeah. out and then that reprise has is has nowhere to go. Like it it doesn't have that same impact. You're not feeling like oh, he he you know, his heart was broken when he was younger because he was so focused on greed and sort of, you know, ambition and not really paying attention to the woman he loves. And now, decades later, he's sort of found his way and opened his heart again. And now he's got this whole community and, and he's making a difference with, you know, saving Tiny Tim's life and helping the Cratchit family and paying things back to the people around him that made him such a success, all this stuff. Like, I, I feel like that that arc doesn't really feel complete without that song. But that's just me. Well, we'll see. According to my research for this episode, Brian Henson said that they, you know, only in the last couple of years had like had found the actual like the raw footage of that scene and like the widescreen version of it and they were going to possibly restore it into the film at some point so we'll see maybe it down the line but if people do want to see that it it's not in the the version of this film on Disney plus but it is an extra so you can see it and there's a deleted scene so it, it like you said it is available so at least that at least we have that but then you know we get the ghost of christmas present and and it feels like Christmas, which again, back to being joyous. It's kind of alarming, not alarming in a bad way, but like surprising that the vast majority of songs in this movie are not sung by Muppet characters that we know. We have Marley Marley, One More Sleep Till Christmas, and Bless Us All. And that's about it. That's like less than half the songs in this film that are sung by our, you know, kind of staple Muppet characters. I think that's that again is something that's really, and that's probably another reason why they cut when love is gone. It's like, hey, we got to move it along. People want to see the Muppets. What is this? What are your thoughts on how how much of the the musical, you know, the screen time goes to other characters? I I think that's one of the things that always sticks out about this film is again, like we're we're either not plopping them in somewhere with a wink and a nudge, but we're also not having them be the central characters. So I think. I think if the music was written by someone else or they were approaching these musical numbers as not quite a through-line musical in an essence, even though thematically the songs don't really run together in any kind of recurring way, that it would have been, it would have felt really disjointed. But everything kind of feels like if you put in a couple of songs that started to link these you know foundational songs in the film like you could probably have a 
Lion King-esque version of the Muppet Christmas Carol on some kind of stage because they they do feel like theatrical stage musical numbers. And mm-hmm. so I think it, it's easy to be able to have those sung by someone who's not Kermit and someone who's not, you know, Gonzo as the leads of these songs because they don't necessarily, they feel like a musical versus a Muppet movie with songs in them. Yeah, no, that's a, and that's a, a huge distinction. I would, it's it, it it's very important, I think, to this film that Paul Williams did these songs because other than the Muppet movie, I don't, I wouldn't hesitate to say this has the best selection of songs from every any Muppet production ever. Like it's this in the original Muppet movie. And that's about it. Like I like a lot of the songs in those other films, but it's exactly what you said. It's it feels sort of cohesive as a whole. This is the story we're telling with these songs kind of propelling the story forward. So that in this film, you like I, I sort of mentioned earlier, Miss Piggy shows up like 53 minutes in and it it, it says a lot about this film that you don't even you, you kind of when she shows up, you're like, oh yeah, Miss Piggy. We were like, that's right. She hasn't even been on screen. Like you don't even. It doesn't even really register in the same way. You're not sitting there waiting to spot all the Muppet characters that you know. You're so invested in Scrooge's story, and that's because the music, every song, pushes that story forward in a way that it sort of does. Maybe even less so in the Muppet movie, but those songs are on, of such high level that it it elevates everything around it. Except in, instead of like what you're saying, where in the Muppets Take Manhattan, which, well, I guess that's sort of thrust by their musical that they wrote, but there are musical numbers that are really not, you can kind of lift them out and they don't really have much of impact on the plot. I think here that is, the story is the songs and and I think they're sort of interwoven in a way that they, they rarely are. Yeah, like the Muppets Take Manhattan is kind of what singing in the rain is when you consider a musical because hmm. they are not songs that are moving that plot forward all of the time like sometimes they're just a throwaway song so then that way Jane Kelly can get to dancing versus a you know little shop of horrors where those songs are so integral to the continuation of the story you know we have two sides to the same coin in essence with those two films where yeah the Muppets Take Manhattan is a fever dream of a musical and the Muppet Christmas Carol is very much a standard musical in that aspect yeah no that's a that's a beautiful distinction well put I and I I love that you know we we mentioned bless us all a little earlier i think robin as tiny tim is another one of those genius casting of course robin as tiny tim not only is the same species as kermit but there's a is a sort of familial relationship with those characters you know in the standard muppet world but also robin looks like he's gonna like fall over like if you touch him because he has that sort of frail look to him so that's that was a genius choice for for tiny tim as well and and like you said the ghost of christmas yet to come they they stick with the grim reaper they don't they don't reinvent the wheel there i think that the the transition the progress that scrooge makes throughout this film feels concise in that we don't spend a lot of time in with each of these ghosts but it still it still feels believable and it flows. Whereas like the Ghost of Christmas Past sort of cracks him open again, like we said with with Bell, kind of gets him 
tearing up, get him feeling emotion because he closed his heart off. The Ghost of Christmas Present sort of deepens that. And then by the time the Ghost of Christmas yet to come is there, he's ready. He's like, I, I'm going to change. I've seen the error of my ways. You know, and I think that that's sort of just honoring Dickens's work in the first place. And I think it's it's really cool how the Muppets are able to do that. I feel like we are, we're kind of winding down the actual movie. I, I few things I did want to mention. I think we've said about how great Michael Caine is here. I think it's it's so important because he does bring menace and warmth so that when he does launch into Thankful Heart, it feels jarring, but he goes from miserly to joyous and having a parade of people following him around, delivering gifts. How do you feel? Do you think Michael Caine makes that transition feel believable and throughout the course of the film, but especially when, you know, when that epiphany sort of hits. Yeah, I feel like Michael Caine has like this twinkle in his eye that you can kind of really connect that shift with. Because I mean, especially early on, he was like very brooding and you could see that in his facial expressions. And I mean, no offense to the hair department, but that wasn't going to help in making him kind of look less intimidating from one, you know, from the start of the film and then to the end of the film. So, I mean, his aesthetic didn't change, but I think it was kind of just that twinkle that he got back showed that deep down there was that change. And I also think that it is, you know, it was kind of fun to see that Scrooge show up at the Cratchit's house pretending that he was still this curmudgeonly sir and just his immediate softening when he you know tells Bob Cratchit everything that he's going to do to help make his life better he didn't need a lot to say he just kind of embodied that softening yeah I've I've always loved that that bit that even though Scrooge, even though Scrooge has just gone on this tour of generosity and sort of, like we said, sort of acknowledging everyone in the community, he even goes to see Fozziewig and his old headmaster and gives them Christmas presents as well. Like he still can't help but sort of mess with Cratchit for a second, which I, I always find really, really fun. And, and in this version, you get Miss Piggy's sort of rage mode, which is which is always, you know, kind of a staple of that character as well. But yes, I, I love that so much. It's great. And then the other moment that I, that happens just before that, that always really sticks out to me. It's again, the little character beats that this movie somehow finds time for in like an 87 minute runtime or something is when he comes across Beaker and Bunsen on the street. And uh, he says, oh, you know, he gives, he's going to give them a big donation. And then Bunsen's like, oh, I just wish I could do something for you. And then Beaker gives him the scarf. I don't know why, but that moment always just really hits me because it's such a sweet, sweet gesture. And it's and it's simple and it's tender. And his reaction, he's like legitimately touched by an act of kindness because he's actually, you know, one receiving one and then actually accepting it. And it, and it also just feels like that last miss, missing touch of kind of the classic Ebenezer Scrooge look with the with the scarf on. Has that moment ever stood out to you or am I am I alone? Oh, no, it's I think that that's kind of one of those moments, too, where it helps bookend the film nicely, yeah. because those are two characters that he torments and kicks out of his office and then. I think it also kind of shows that he's starting to understand what goodness is. That goodness is not necessarily always about sharing your wealth, that there are also things that you can do 
that don't necessarily cost you any money that can help enrich the lives of others as well as your own. And so I think that that was just such a nice, almost handoff of that lesson to him by Beaker giving him his scar. Yeah, it's it's a moment that, that again, the, the, the book ending with having him make a donation, that happens a lot of times in, in versions of the story. But the handing of the scarf, like like you said, it's just... It's that it's opening your heart. It's being, you know, it's that sense of generosity. It's and it, again, it's such a sweet, simple thing that that gesture that that Beaker does. That and Michael Caine kills it in in this movie generally, but in that moment, just like that, his reaction shot. It's it's always very sort of quietly powerful to me. And then, of course, as we're saying, this whole thing is so reverent for the source material of course it ends with gonzo saying oh if you like this you should read the book which i just want gonzo to just pop into random movies and narrate them i think that would be a thing we should we should start is there anything before we start moving on with the episode about the muppet christmas Carol? we haven't talked about any moments or songs or or character beats or or callbacks or anything that we didn't get to i know there's a bean bunny is in this thing and lou zealand and his boomerang fiction Fisher in this thing and there's a lot of little things is there anything you wanted to shout out no I think that we covered kind of like all of my favorite parts of the film but yeah I also like shout out to the other humans in the film as well because yes yes Michael Caine said I'm playing this straight but they also didn't have to and I really liked the shared commitment of telling a very authentic story that just happens to have Muppets in it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that, especially the scene with Fred and his wife and, you know, their their friends having a party and they're playing yes and no. And and again, Scrooge sort of sees this is how people see him as this creature not to be, you know, that's unwelcome creature. And that's that even his nephew, who's who he cares about him, who's trying to get him out, you know, to re-enter the world. Even he's like, yeah, that's my uncle, that guy that no one likes. I, I think even that, it's it's just, it's so pivotal for for Scrooge's sort of journey in the in this film. And yeah, good, good point. Shout out to the other human actors in the film because they do a great job. So at this point, I wanted to sort of transition into the bigger picture. Obviously, this is the fourth Muppet movie, but what is, in your in your view, what is the legacy of the Muppets as a franchise, I guess movies and beyond, since they have so much else, so much, so much else going on in that, in that world. What is the legacy of the, the Muppets in your, in your mind? I mean, I think the Muppets have kind of always been a great tool for telling stories. I think that they are kind of almost like the, the puppet versions of like someone like Mr. Rogers or something like Reading Rainbow that are both educational and kind, but also not so scary that children can't be enticed by it. And I think the thing where some of these other programs and, you know, franchises don't have is this, you know, huge gang of characters. And I think that that's also so important because it gives an opportunity for children to find bits and pieces of themselves and different characters instead of having, you know, here's our four core characters and then maybe some side characters. But the fact that there are so many well-loved characters that are all vastly different, that have different personalities, that have 
you know, different quirks about them, different things that people enjoy about them. I think that that's kind of the beauty of the Muppets is they're all unique and celebrated in their uniqueness. Yeah, yeah. I, no, that's they're, they, they exude a lot of, to me, a lot of strong morals, you know, sense mm-hmm. of humor, but also following your dreams and also acceptance and community and friendship and working together. Yeah, it, it's they're basically a general force for good in my mind a lot of times in, the, in their purest sense. I think there's a few projects here and there that they've been a little mishandled where I'm like, I don't know if they understand what the Muppets are or at least supposed to be in, in, the, in their initial version. I think one of the things that especially in franchises that you see, whether it's for the Muppets or even something like the screen movies, by having an ability to start to call back to the original thing that made them so endearing and beloved is going to, I think, be crucial. So whether that be a Muppet special or a series or, a, you know, a theatrical film release, just something that starts to pay homage to the original material, I think sometimes helps reinvigorate that material to then almost like recalibrate to move forward. So I hope that they find something that they can start to call back on to really hone in on the things that captivated audiences from the get-go so that they can start to trudge forward on a more stable path. Yeah, yeah. I think that's I think that's all any of us Muppet fans are really hoping for at this point. Now is the point where I'm going to ask you for your ranking of the eight theatrical Muppet films. You can go best to worst, worst to best. And if you need clarification on which those are, I know there's a million Muppet productions. Just let me know. I I curated my list. Awesome. So I'm going to go, we're going to start from the my least favorite up to the top. So number eight is Muppets Most Wanted. Again, just kind of a cameo disaster of a film. So there's that. Muppets from Space. I slightly remember this one from my youth and I just also remember not being super engaged in it. My number six is Muppet Treasure Island because again, we have Tim Curry, we have a small child person and then we have a lot of winks and nudges. Number five, Muppets Take Manhattan, because it is a fun time, but kind of as you had stated, the music is a little bit all over the place. Four, The Great Muppet Caper. Three, I have The Muppets. That is one that I do remember watching with my younger sibling. And I think that that's why it ranks so high, because I watched him sit there and go from like a teenager to a little kid again so that warms my heart number two the muppet movie which probably is as hot take to have that not at number one but my number one is the muppet christmas carol it's just too timeless yeah i'm really curious to see how this is going to pan out because what i do is i have Every guest rank them and then I sort of calculate what ranking is sort of the average of all the guest choices. So I'm really curious to see where this is going to pan out. I have a feeling it's going to be a kind of photo finish Muppet movie, Muppets Christmas Carol, because those are kind of those are those are my top two as well. Yeah, uh, I, I think I think the Muppet movie for me slightly edges this one out, but it's it's like it's pretty close. It's 
it's not, you know, it's not any, it, none of the other movies come from anywhere near these two. Like these are the ones I think that for me stand the test of time and that I will yeah. hold up as sort of the gold standard of Muppet content. And so, yeah, so those, no, that's a, that's a very solid list. I think it's it, to your point earlier about them reinvigorating things. They did that with the Muppets and that's why everybody's sort of wondering what happened after that. Mm-hmm. Like I, I get, I guess based on your list, you feel like Muppets most and most wanted squandered that goodwill a bit. Yeah. It kind of is almost like what happens with every good filmmaker in essence is something worked. And so everyone wants a little piece of that. And instead of keeping to your vision, you just let everyone join. It, it gets a little messy. Yeah. I, I think my thing, and people will hear about this when I get to that episode yeah, in more depth. My thing with Muppets Most Wanted is I appreciate the fact that the Muppets are sort of the at the forefront again, because I do mm-hmm. feel like in The Muppets, it's all Jason Siegel and Amy Adams, and there's really sidelining the Muppets to a certain extent, which that kind of bugs me. But then The Muppets Most Wanted kind of bugs me as it it feels like so many elements of it are like a remix of Great Muppet Caper and Muppets Take Manhattan. And mm-hmm. I'm like... It, to the point that they're literally going together again, again. And I'm like, oh, are you serious? <laughs> like, you're just repeating the same song from the Muppets Take Manhattan. So it's, it's, it gets very frustrating with the last couple Muppet movies, but we'll see. I'm sure I, I hope the Muppets will, will get their, their mojo back. I did enjoy Muppet, uh, Muppet Haunted Mansion. I did think that was pretty fun and kind of a, a step maybe in the right direction. So we will see what the future holds, but for now, I want to say thank you so much, Morgan, for coming on the show to talk about The Muppet Christmas Carol. This was so much fun. We're recording this at the middle of June, so it, it's fun to watch a Christmas movie in the middle of the summer, especially one that I love as much as this. So can you tell people where they can find you on social media? Yeah, Twitter is probably the best place. So that's at MSML Roberts. And yeah, you can find all of my work there and probably some viral tweets about Mama Mia because apparently that's a thing that happens from time to time. Really? Okay. Cool. Yeah. And I just, you know, this was so much fun. I, and I'd love to have you back. I love that you mentioned Little Shop of Horrors. If I ever get to doing an episode, a podcast episode on that, I will have to keep you in mind because I love that musical so much please, as well. Please do. It's the, it's <laughs> the puppets. The puppet work is it's, always yes. the best part. Yes, it is. And they, they're, you know, they've been talking about doing a remake for no reason that we don't, I mean, remake we don't need. And and part of me is worried they're going to try and CG Audrey too. And I'm like, don't do that. No. It, what makes that movie, and I've seen Little Shop of Horrors on stage, and it's again, a puppet. That's the most amazing thing I, is the fact that that is a practical effect, which is why it still looks more realistic than most movies now, because mm-hmm. it was literally there. It's all in the design and the performance and you know, I like I said, I'm I'm in my late 30s, so I grew up in sort of the heyday of Muppets and pu- everything was puppets, you know, Labyrinth and Dark Crystal and all these, oh, yeah. everything was, was never-ending story and, and all these things were, were puppets and practical effects. So I'm such a sucker for that kind of thing. And the fact that you mesh that with Rick Moranis is a huge part of my childhood and and you know all the, the kind of timeless music and that it's like yeah so we'll we'll have to talk about that sounds uh, great off my can't wait i yeah absolutely can't wait for that <laughs> thanks so much morgan this was a blast yeah thank you big thanks to film critic morgan roberts for coming on to discuss 1992's the muppet christmas carol 
this was, a, as we said in this episode, this was a big one for the Muppet brand. And I think it was a huge gamble that wildly paid off. But it also kickstarted this whole trend, as we said, of literary adaptations with Muppets. Do you want to see more of that? Would you like them to go back to the uh, to that well on Disney Plus or elsewhere? We already getting uh, we already got Muppets Haunted Mansion. Do you have a book you want to see the Muppets kind of thrown into? If so, let me know. You can find me on Twitter at Crooked Table, the same handle on Instagram, and via email at Robert at CrookedTable.com. Hey, for all we know. By the time you hear this, Disney will have bought Harry Potter and we can we can have that book series with the Muppets. I know that uh, raises a whole other, a lot of other questions. But for now, that's a wrap on another Crooked Table production. We'll be back next episode with Muppet Treasure Island. And we'll catch you in the next stop, everyone. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of the little KED.